0: You are listening to Locally Sourced Science. Your connection to the scientific discoveries happening in the Finger Lakes community. Being a dean is a service position and being a dean at the College of Agriculture and Life Sciences is a position of humility. It's a position of amazing opportunity. And I really believe that in the 21st century, the college is uniquely positioned to solve some of the greatest threats that we're facing.
1: That was Professor Ben Holton, the new Dean of the College of Agriculture and Life Sciences at Cornell University. And since one of the roles of locally sourced science is to bring town and gown together, we figured it's the perfect platform to introduce you the new dean in the first interview today in the second interview Candice Slimper talks to nancy ruiz a phd candidate about a very important topic alzheimer's disease but before the interviews let's hear from kitty gifford about winter birding
2: welcome to locally birding from the bird feeder to the skies look out and look up Woodpeckers are the topic today. You may yourself wonder about whether this refers to a pecker of woods or a pecker in the woods. Well, let's talk about one of the big peckers anyway. Recent research on the Pileated Woodpecker, the largest North American woodpecker, it's about crow-sized, is some encouraging news for these headbangers of the forest. While widespread in forests in the United States and Canada, this cock of the woods has proven adaptable and thrives even in suburban areas offering sufficient woodland habitat. However, that wasn't the case for New York City. Following rapid urbanization in the 19th century, they disappeared from the region. At the turn of the century, state, federal, and provincial bird protections were established and forests began to regrow. And by the 1930s, things were looking up. The study published in December 2020 shows their reestablishment on two old-growth green spaces on Staten Island. This is a great example of how green spaces can increase local biodiversity. These are raucous and stunning birds. Both male and females of the species sport a red crest, and the term Pileated in the species name comes from Latin.
3: Pileatus.
2: Thanks, Google. Meaning capped. Males show a red stripe or mustache on the cheek that is not present in females for them in nearby woodlands and green spaces with forest patches. They can often be seen low to the ground foraging on tree stumps and fallen trees, eating their favorite food, carpenter ants. If you have a suet feeder with a tail prop a type of feeder that supports a more natural feeding position, you may occasionally attract these birds, though they are known for their wariness. And one more good bit of news. American Birding Association has named the Pileated Woodpecker their Bird of the Year. ABA President Jeff Gordon notes the choice of this bird is particularly suited for our times as an emblem both of nature's wildness and its adaptability, a bird of the woods that's increasingly coming into our backyards. Tell us what you see. Tweet at FLX Science Radio. For Locally Sourced Science, this is Kitty Gifford.
1: So how did you end up in this beautiful Finger Lakes region? We all have our own stories. For example, I came from Hungary, studied at UC Davis, and then I was looking for the best schools in agriculture. I found Cornell. Uh, The College of Agriculture and Life Sciences is among the best, not just nationally but also in the whole world. The story of our first guest is very similar to mine. He came from UC Davis, settled down at the Finger Lakes region towards the end of 2020 and became the new dean of the College of Agriculture and Life Sciences. So our first guest today is Professor Ben Horton. First, I asked him how the region is treating him so far.
0: It's been an incredibly warm, welcoming to me and my family, and we couldn't be more grateful than to be, uh, you know, in Ithaca and for me to be, you know, in a leadership position with the college, which is an incredible place. So uh, all, all very good so far. Thank you.
1: Very nice. Are, are you missing California?
0: <clears throat> you know, California is an amazing place. Uh, I had a great career at UC Davis. I still have so many friends and colleagues out there. I have a lab group that's functioning out there. Um, California is in a lot of trouble with the wildfires and climate change Absolutely. and uh, housing crisis. So, um, you know, you hate to leave a place, you feel a little bit like you have survivor's guilt. <laughs> but uh, right now, California is going to be going, a lot of places are in trouble. California is in a huge amount of trouble. So getting our family out here is a very positive thing.
1: Yeah, I read somewhere that, that upstate New York and the Finger Lakes is among the best places to be uh, regarding climate change and the impacts of climate change.
0: Absolutely, and people thought I was crazy, but um, you know, a few years ago, my wife and I started using the climate data to figure out well if we were to move where would it be and this was one of very few places and then uh, i was contacted about the deanship and my wife's from california (laughs) she's never left the state but she's like yeah let's go for it and so here we are we were living just outside of davis and i had been there since 2007 prior to that i was at stanford for a couple years but um You know, California is, like I said, an amazing place. It's just going through some really tough times that are not going to get easier anytime
1: soon. I think I was there in 98 and 99. I did my master's research at the Land, Air, and Water Resources Department.
0: Oh, yeah, my department.
1: Was it your department?
0: Yeah, small world. Yeah, that was my home department for uh, 13, 14 years. How did
1: you end up at Cornell in 2020?
0: Being a dean at the College of Agriculture and Life Sciences is a position of humility. It's a position of amazing opportunity. And I really believe that in the 21st century, the college is uniquely positioned to solve some of the greatest threats that we're facing, whether it's food security, global hunger, biodiversity conservation, climate change, which we'll talk about today. So, you know, entering the deanship is not something that I had forecasted for my career uh, a couple decades ago. I was fascinated by science. I had a deep passion for environment and agriculture, but I never really knew where that was gonna take me. So I got my first degree in aquatic chemistry at the University of Wisconsin, Stevens Point. And from there, I got more fascinated about the application of mathematics. So I got an engineering degree at Syracuse University and then uh, eventually went to Princeton University where I did a degree in ecology and evolutionary biology for my PhD. Uh, spent a couple of years at Stanford as a postdoc in global ecology and then started my own program at UC Davis uh, and eventually became a director there of a very large scale institute. That actually put me in a position where ultimately uh, I could take on a deanship. So, again, none of it was premeditated. It's just been a path that kind of revealed itself over time. And I couldn't be more pleased than to have landed here at Cornell.
1: But I heard somewhere that you actually tried out Cornell before for at least a couple of months. Is that true? For your PhD?
0: Yeah. So, you know, when I finished my degree at Syracuse in engineering and I, you know, kind of did that in chemistry, engineering, and I started thinking, what about the planet? What about the biology on the planet? One of the top places at that time and still is, of course, one of the top places was uh, Cornell. So I applied to Cornell and I began working with my advisor. And after a few months, he said, hey, I got a job at Princeton. (laughs) And I said, no, I don't want to leave. I love Ithaca. I love fly fishing. I love Cornell. But uh, I did leave with him after a year. And Princeton was phenomenal for my career. But I always thought, gosh, that Ithaca, that Cornell, that's a a place. That's a destination. And again, somehow, um, here I am back in the Department of Ecology and Evolutionary Biology, now as a professor and a dean of the, uh, <laughs> of the school where I was once a, uh, a, a grad student.
1: This is Local Resource Science, and my name is Mark Sharvari. You are listening to an interview with the new dean of the College of Agriculture and Life Sciences at Cornell University. Dean Ben Holton moved here from California, and he just told us a little bit about how he became the dean. Next, I asked him about his research related to climate change. If you'd like to hear this episode or previous episodes from the past five years, go to locallysourcedscience.org or find us on your favorite podcast app. You should also follow us on Twitter at FLX Science radio, And of course, tweet at us or reach out to us if you would like to join us either as an interviewee or as a producer of the show. And now back to Dean Horton.
0: Yeah, so the big picture on the problem is first, agriculture is uniquely positioned to solve some of the global carbon climate challenge in front of us. And as my program evolved first from an exploration of natural ecosystems on this planet and how they provide boundless services, including air that we can breathe, water that we can drink, and carbon that is stored in our soils and trees around the globe. Um, I started to see that despite those services, the elevated concentrations of carbon dioxide in our atmosphere were causing substantial suffering on the planet. People were losing lives, they're losing livelihoods. Our ability to continue to grow food was being reduced. Sea levels were going up. Entire communities were having to migrate um, from the coast in areas such as Alaska and Florida. Um, and then if you look at areas like uh, India, uh, heat waves were dramatically hurting people, You know, causing huge amounts of death. And in my home state of California, I started to observe significant changes in real time. So that led me to shift my entire program to the idea of carbon solutions. And a lot of that focuses on how do we use farmland as a carbon sink that not only allows for CO2 concentrations to be mitigated, but also allows us to grow food in a way that helps farmers increase their bottom line, restore soil health, and creates more nutritious food, which
1: is something that that we need to do. So, then somebody says, okay, it's a carbon sink, what, what does that mean?
0: It's a strange term. I remember the first time I was exposed in biogeoscience, which is kind of my field. I usually don't say it because it's a very strange word, but combined biology, geology, <clears throat> and chemistry uh, to understand the planet we live on. Um, this notion of a carbon sink started coming up. I said, what is i keep thinking of like my sink, you know, like what does this have to do with carbon? Well, really what that means is if you look at your sink, there's a drain at the bottom and that water drains down. So now imagine there are plants and soils which are grabbing carbon dioxide from the air and acting as a sink for it. Um, On the planet, trees are carbon sinks, soils are carbon sinks as they accumulate dead organic matter. Uh, carbon sinks are also in our grasslands, and humans can create carbon sinks through different engineering uh, approaches, and that's something we focus a lot on today. But the carbon sink is the idea that there's CO2 being pulled out of the atmosphere through the process of photosynthesis that ends up in the soil um, and in trees over time that can lock up some of that carbon dioxide. The scientific community thinks that about 25% of human carbon dioxide emissions, largely from the combustion of fossil fuel is actually going into the terrestrial carbon sink. Another 25% goes into the ocean as a sink. And then the remaining 50% approximately stays in the atmosphere where it causes uh, climate warming and climate change.
1: And I know you have worked a lot with farmers in California. So are you planning to do
0: that here too? I see that as one of the great opportunities of New York State. New York State and California are very aligned in their goals for carbon neutrality. And those goals can come about through emissions reduction, renewable energy sources, very important. But agriculture can play a huge role. And my projects in California are now over 100 acres of demonstrations working with farmers up and down the Central Valley. And we are now going to start exploring how to create similar operations here in New York State, and then connect the two states climate science has been around for a long time one name i like to point out eunice foot from upstate new york mm-hmm. a uh, woman scientist who was kind of self-trained was the first to observe the heat absorbing properties of water and co2 and scientists have taken some of her early studies and calculations to estimate Uh, how warm the climate will be with elevated carbon dioxide and can show that her results scale really well to what global climate models are saying today, which is just amazing.
1: This is Locally Source Science, my name is Mark Sharvari and I'm talking to Professor Ben Holton about his research in climate change. And next I asked him, how does he communicate with those who actually do not believe climate change is related to human activity?
0: That is a terrific question, Mark, and I spend a lot of time talking to groups who may not agree that climate is a problem. Here's what I find. First, we got to talk about what we value on the planet. Most of us value our children. Most of us value growing food. Most of us value our real estate. Most of us value natural environments, hunting, fishing, all that stuff. And when we talk about our values, we find we are totally aligned. And I start to show to them, well, look, I don't want this to be happening. I don't want our climate to be changing, but as a scientist, I have a responsibility to adhere to the data and these are the data. The other thing I talk a lot about is like, look, let's talk about some of the solutions. Think about how big our economy can grow through green innovations and green technology. Think about how the United States can lead the world. Think about battery technologies and how many jobs we can create. So it's important for everyone to understand how they can be a part of the solution set. Um, at the same time, we know that misinformation, disinformation is out there. And there are groups or special interests who don't want to see us take action on climate change. And we have to always hold up science and data. Uh, finally, I'll talk to you a little bit about what we're doing in our project, because I think this is kind of exciting stuff. So what we've been working on is, is something called enhanced weathering, and that's carbon capture in farmlands by adding specific kinds of rock dust. the Mm -hmm. soil. Well it turns out, we know this from earth history, that if you add this rock dust to the soil, each time it breaks down it acts as a sponge for CO2. Mm -hmm. And it takes that carbon dioxide and it can lock it up into carbonates which can stick around for thousands of years. So it's a way to really get the carbon dioxide out of the air. And this is a farm we're working with uh, in Central Valley where they're just using standard equipment and we got a grant to work with them and start exploring how rock dust affects their crop yields and quantify the greenhouse gases that we can pull out of the air.
1: What do you recommend to, to folks here in the in the Finger Lakes? What can we do or to contribute to mitigating the impact of climate change?
0: Yeah, the first thing I would say is talk about climate change.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: That sounds a little silly, but if we don't talk about climate change with each other as a community, with groups who may not know much about climate change or may even disagree, um, it's gonna to continue to be hard to solve this challenge. It's gonna take a collective. And so talking with others, as you get knowledge, making sure that people are aware this is really happening, exploring the impacts. And then there's ways we can mitigate against some of the impacts. You know, it's gonna take an all hands on deck approach and so that's where a lot of my study is focused is you get real strong local benefits they can also have global benefits but you cannot get global without building a strong foundation uh locally and regionally and then seeing how things go from there
1: thank you very much dean halton thank you for talking to our listeners
0: i guess i would end with a final quote the great nelson mandela says everything seems impossible until it's done That's the kind of thinking we need for this challenge. So it's my pleasure to be here today. I appreciate it.
4: You are listening to Locally Source Science, and this is Candace Lumber. Have you ever wondered what it's like to do research as a graduate student? Well, if so, you are in luck, because in this segment, you will hear from an early budding scientist.
3: My name is Nancy Ruiz. I am a fourth year PhD student. I'm Biomedical Engineering at Cornell University. I study Alzheimer's disease. I basically use fluorescent microscopes to look into the mouse brain. And uh, this mouse have Alzheimer's disease. Can you describe
4: what Alzheimer's disease is?
3: Sure, so uh, I think a lot of people are familiarized with Alzheimer's because it's the most common form of dementia. It affects more than 30 million people worldwide, and it's characterized by a progressive neurodegeneration um, that starts with the accumulation of two proteins in the brain. So the first protein is called amyloid beta, and the second protein is called tau. And so amyloid beta starts to accumulate in the brain tissue, Uh, And then tau starts to accumulate inside the neurons. So both of these proteins are actually killing slowly the brain. And this is what eventually will lead to neurodegeneration. And so the people who suffer from Alzheimer's disease usually are around their 70s or 80s. And this is called late-onset Alzheimer's disease. But there is also another form of the disease that it's called early onset. And usually people around their 40s or 50 years old are going to be suffering from early onsets. What determines which one people are going to suffer? It's usually um, the early onset Alzheimer's disease is driven by genetic factors. Genetic mutations in a specific genes will give you this form of the disease and it is irritable. So it means like your parents can pass it to you in a dominant way, but the late onset Alzheimer's disease, we don't really know what causes it. And that's what has been, what has made it so difficult, um, to, to treat
4: so what are some of the
3: symptoms of
4: a person with Alzheimer's disease?
3: They will usually start to forget things at the beginning. Um, very trivial things, for example, where I leave the keys or uh, what's the name of the bus that I have to take this morning? Or where's my office? You know, things like that. So, yeah, progressive loss of memory is it's going to start to happen and then it will become more and more severe as, as the years come by. And then uh, you will reach to a point where there's not only memory loss, but also some of the motor functions in um, of your body are gonna be impaired. So you're gonna need to be assisted in a daily basis to perform your activities. And so people eventually die from secondary causes. Um, Obviously aging plays a big role and most of the people that suffer from Alzheimer's are going to suffer from hypertension, diabetes and other comorbidities. So after the person has reached like the most severe form of Alzheimer's where they cannot literally recognize any of their loved ones it's possible that this person will die from uh, secondary causes.
4: So you said you used a mouse model to study this disease. How do you how do you know whether a mouse remembers something? Like how do these mice also have Alzheimer's disease?
3: Yeah, that's a good question. Um, so we take advantage of what we know from the early onset Alzheimer's disease. We know that it's a genetic disease. Um, we know the specific genes that cause it. And so we can basically extract these genes from the human and insert them into the mouse genome. And so what will happen is that the mouse will express these genes from the human and it will start to overproduce this protein that I mentioned at the beginning that it's called amyloid beta. And so mice are going to start to develop this uh, protein aggregates in the brain that, that are usually called plaques And then they are going to start to lose their memory. And the way that we study this is by behavioral tasks. Um, So we can definitely know when the mice are starting to perform badly in this test. And this is basically telling us they are cognitively impaired in comparison to mice that don't have these mutations. And so the mice have been really useful for not only me and my lab, but the the whole scientific community that studies Alzheimer's disease because um, studying like the cellular mechanisms that drive the disease is really hard in humans. You know, that research in humans is very limited. So um, using mouse models has been super useful to understand uh, what could be causing the disease in the first place and then if we understand what is causing it, then we can try to tackle it um, with, you know, specific therapeutics for, for the disease.
4: You are listening to Locally Source Signs, and my name is Candace Limper, and this is an interview with Nancy Reese. Nancy is currently a graduate student at Cornell University, and she is explaining her research in this interview. Can you give me an example of a
3: memory test I use with the mice? Sure. So we have a lot of tests, but I would say that my favorite one is the novel object recognition test. And so you basically put the mouse in an arena that has two objects, and then the mouse is going to go through to the objects and it's going to recognize them, right? And because mice are naturally curious, they're going to spend a lot of time Um, exploring these objects. And then after a couple minutes, you take the mouse out of the arena and then you will replace one of those objects for a different object. Um, This could be anything, like we use, I don't know, a square or a triangle, something that they just can't go and explore. Uh, And then you put the mouse again in the arena. And so because the mice are curious, we expect the mouse to spend a significant amount of time with the new object because they already know the previous one. Uh, But turns out that mice that are cognitively impaired do not spend as much time with the new object. And so this is a way that we can measure, for example, um, spatial memory, short-term memory, Uh, things that are very uh, impaired in Alzheimer's disease.
4: Are there any drugs on the market or um, clinical trials going on to slow down the disease progression?
3: Not really. So the problem with all the Alzheimer's disease drugs is that they reach phase three trials and then they just stop. Like they they show that they are not effective in order to um, like diminish the progression or, or to stop the disease. So there have been, there have been a a lot of clinical trials that have failed recently because of this. So right now there's nothing in the market to treat the disease. Um, What I know right now is that, you know, kind of, Combined therapies, um, some drugs that are given to, like, improve learning, improve memory, are given uh, with, you know, a good diet and exercise and things like that are, are used to kind of treat these patients. But eventually nothing is efficient enough to, to treat it or to stop it.
4: Is part of your research looking at any environmental factors or pathogens such as toxoplasma?
3: Yeah, that's a good question. I know that a lot of people are working on that. Um, I look I have done studies uh, evaluating the effect of exercise in Alzheimer's disease mice, for example. And uh, we basically put the mice to run uh, in a little plate. Uh, for like three months voluntarily, you know. And then we evaluated the differences in cerebral blood flow, neurogenesis, memory, behavior, and for example, amyloid deposits in the brain, uh, comparing the mice that were sedentary versus the mice that were exercising And we didn't find any uh, differences in blood flow, which was what we were expecting, but we did find an increase in neurogenesis and we also find an increase in uh, memory in this behavior tasks that I just mentioned, the novel object recognition test. And so this is telling us that just a short term exercising every single day can be very beneficial for the brain And so we're looking forward to expand this study to include more mice, to, for example, include more time uh, in the treadmill to see if we can actually see increases in blood flow or increases in neuronal activity. If you're interested in my research and you want to know more, you can follow me on my Twitter, which is at Nancy Reese U. Same on Instagram and also on my LinkedIn They're all the same handle basically. And if you are interested also in what our lab does, uh, you can follow our webpage, snlab.bme.cornell.edu.
4: Thank you, Nancy, for your time and um, look forward to see what happens with your
3: research. Thank you, Candice.
1: I hope you enjoyed today's episode, we would like to thank Joe Louis for the music and Christopher McPherson and Ross Y for the billiated woodpecker recordings. Our contributors were Kitty Gifford and Candice Slimper. Find us at locallysourcedscience.org. This is Mark Sharvari. Science out!